Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, did you know that you could have already listened to all these stories that you're about to listen to right now? If you follow me over on Patreon, or if you become a member of the channel, you can get videos a day in advance. Maybe even two days in advance, depending on how well my work schedule is going. If that sounds like something you're interested in, it's a dollar a month, either on Patreon or here on YouTube through memberships. Both of those are linked down below. If you're interested in audio only, don't want to run up your data, don't want to you know, keep your phone on all night, whatever, check me out over on pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever. Just search up The Graveyard Shift with Mr. Davis, and all the audio for every video for the past, like, three years is available. So that's over maybe 300 hours of content just ready and waiting for you. If any of those things sound interesting, or if you just want to support the channel, check out all those links down below. Now, Let's get right into tonight's stories. My sister is an urban legend. I never liked those growing up, probably because of her. You ever notice how when someone tells an urban legend, it always starts out something like, my brother's cousin had this girlfriend who wants to... Yeah. Sure he did. I think that's why people find urban legends fun, though. Nothing bad ever happens to someone you know personally, of course, but it's still someone connected to you. A friend of a friend of a friend. That makes it real enough to be fun, but not so real as to be horrifying or tragic. The thing is, urban legends have to start somewhere. And your dumb stories might not be so fun for the people who suffered the truth. Most people don't even remember that I had an older sister, much less who my sister was. Her name was Michelle, but everyone called her Missy. She liked baking a lot. We used to make cupcakes together. That's the strongest memory I have of her, and I hold on to it when times are tough. When people are talking, running their mouths without thinking twice. She always let me choose what color sprinkles to use. <laughs> Isn't that nice? She was really kind to me for an older sister. Missy was a full 12 years older than me. I was only 6 when she died. Missy had this best friend, you see. Ava. Ava was nice, too. And when she came over, she and Missy would let me play with them, at least for a little bit. They never treated me like a nuisance. My memories of Ava are scarce in my mind, and I see flashes of black hair, and I can hear her laugh. She had a very distinct laugh, the kind that always makes you happy just to hear. Anyway, Ava got sick when she was in high school. Leukemia. She was sick for a while, and... And then she died. 
I saw her once or twice in the hospital when she was still feeling okay. I wasn't allowed to see her at the very end, though. But Missy went to see her every day. The day Ava died, Missy promised to keep seeing her every day, no matter what. And she kept her promise. After Ava's death, Missy used to drive to the cemetery every day after school. It was her senior year of high school, and she could have been out partying with friends, getting into all sorts of dumb trouble. But she wasn't. Instead, she spent every afternoon just sitting at Ava's grave. My parents encouraged it at first, but eventually... They grew worried. This isn't healthy, my mother told my father one night. They were whispering, but not quietly enough. I suppose they hadn't realized that I was hiding at the top of the stairs, hanging onto every word. It's not good for her. She's torturing herself over this. I think we should talk to her. My father was a man of few words, so each word he used was important. I knew that there'd be no more daily cemetery visits once they'd talked to Missy, and that made me relieved. I, too, was worried about my precious big sister. Unfortunately, they never had the chance. That night, Missy was late coming home from the cemetery. My parents were worried enough when the knock came at the door. Missy never knocked. When we saw the police officer standing there asking for Michelle Turner's parents, we all knew what had happened. The details came later. It was dark and slippery out. I remember it was winter then, and ice was beginning to form on the roads. That was probably why my parents were so worried. Anyway, they think a deer ran in front of our old Ford, and that's why Missy swerved. She lost control rolled the car into the ditch just outside the cemetery. They assured us that it was an instant and she didn't feel any pain. My parents buried Missy next to Ava. I begged them not to. At the time, I couldn't explain exactly why that felt wrong. But now I know. It's because she should be buried with us. When the time comes. But my parents felt that this is what Missy would have wanted. Ava's family agreed, so that's where my sister's buried. Next to her best friend in Sandwood Cemetery. And perhaps that's why the legend started. A few years after her death, long enough that the town wasn't in mourning anymore, my family and I started hearing the stories about the two dead girls in Sandwood, how their mysterious deaths could never be explained. People came up with all kinds of crazy ideas, and some variations of the story, Ava and Missy were lovers, torn apart by death, only to be reunited in the afterlife. In others, Ava was jealous that Missy was still alive, and ran her car off the road so that they would be even, which is both ridiculous and stupid. In all versions, though, Missy didn't roll her car by mere accident or coincidence. It was Ava's ghost, or the face of death itself, that did it. Or, and this one pains me the most, she rolled the car because she wanted to. Because she wanted to die, and that was the only way to make it look like an accident. I hate that version because out of all the stories, it's the only one that could be true. It was a full-blown urban legend by the time I hit high school. People were never careful around me because they didn't realize Missy and I were sisters. People had long forgotten to include Missy's last name in the stories. Besides, we were 12 years apart. Most people just assumed Missy was an only child. But she wasn't. She was my sister. That's my sister people are talking about. It's a fun urban legend for some people. It's a terribly painful, terribly real memory for me. I never talked about Missy. I didn't want people asking me about the legends or bothering me with them. I simply avoided them or expressed disinterest if they were brought up. It was working pretty well until one day near the beginning of my senior year 
couple of my friends, Sarah, Tom, and Gregory, wanted to go out to Sandwood one night and begged me to join. They say if you go out when the moon is full, you can hear the sound of the two girls laughing together, said Sarah in hushed tones. We were killing time in the study hall, and I wanted nothing more to escape that stupid conversation. I remember rolling my eyes a little louder. Really? Why is it always a full moon? Honestly, some people are unoriginal. But then I thought about Ava again. And her laugh. And I tried to think back to Missy's laugh. What it sounded like. But the thing was, I couldn't. I just couldn't remember. I was stuck on that sudden revelation when Greg and Tom jumped on board of Sarah's proposal. Why not? It's a nice enough night for it, and it's not like we're going to get another chance, said Tom. Greg nodded. I'm blowing this shithole town as soon as I graduate. Might as well take on a good story from it, right? Greg thought he was such a fucking badass, real edgy. Sometimes it made me cringe, but I still liked him. I really should have said no. I should have told them I had homework or family night or something. There were a million excuses I could choose from because I didn't want to make a mockery out of my sister's death. Out of all the pain my family had been put through at her expense. But her laugh... I couldn't stop thinking about her laugh. And even though I knew I wouldn't hear it, knew the stories were bullshit. Yeah, I'm in. I had to take the chance. Greg drove. His parents were loaded and let him borrow one of their numerous cars whenever he wanted. He picked me up around 10 o'clock, told my parents I was going to a study group, and I'd be back late. They trusted me. They thought I'd moved on as much as I could from Missy's death. They really overestimated me. We drove out to the cemetery and parked on the side of the road, windows down as to better hear the ghostly laughter. Everyone cracked open a beer except for Greg, who actually didn't drink. I think about Greg a lot nowadays. He was always pretending to be someone else. Not that it really matters now, I guess. We sat there drinking for a while, laughing and chatting about school. Sarah was practically bouncing in her seat from nervous anticipation as the night wore on. It was all great fun to them. A a game. I was nervous too, but not the good kind of nervous. Instead, I had a vaguely sick feeling in my stomach. Like something bad was about to happen, but I wasn't sure what. Feeling intensified around midnight. That's when I would hear the laughter, Sarah told me. Because that's when the veil separating life and death is lifted ever so slightly. That's when we can hear the dead. I didn't believe her. I'd waited for a sign from Missy since the day she died and never gotten one. I believed that dead is dead. No amount of wishing or hoping or sobbing in your bedroom while your parents drink themselves to sleep again will ever change that. I was musing on that when Sarah shushed us. Hey, listen, do you hear that? I thought she must be kidding. We all quieted down and listened. Outside, the wind rustled the leaves of the trees. For a moment, just one sliver of a moment, I thought I heard someone walking through the grass. And then it was gone. Tom snorted at us as he chugged the rest of his beer. <laughs> oh, here's. Sh- That's all he got out. And the screaming started. It was all around us, like we were caught in some kind of freak storm, shrieking and wailing, the likes of which I'd never heard before in my life. It was like a portal to hell had been opened, and we were hearing the voices of the damned. It was the sound of pure agony. It was so loud that it shook the car. Oh, wait, it wasn't shaking the car. Something else was. 
The car was rocking wildly back and forth so hard that Sarah and I were bouncing on the seat. I hit my head against the top of the car and cringed, my vision blacking out for a second. I could hear the screams of my friend join in. The voices outside the car rocked violently. I was terrified for a moment that whatever was outside would shake the car hard enough that it would roll over. I took a second to think about that. About the car rolling, about my death, about what my parents would think when I died, just like Missy had when Tom's voice tore through the night air. Roll the windows up! Jesus Christ, roll the windows up! My hand was on the window crank before I could even process what he'd said. I had the window up in seconds. Sarah, on the other hand, was curled up in a ball in the middle of the back seat, sobbing and rocking back and forth. I scrambled over to close her window, trying to desperately hold my ground. The car was still rocking back and forth, back and forth. A few seconds later, the engine roared to life and the screams outside increased in volume. For a moment, the shaking got worse. I was thrown to the floor, and then Greg slammed on the gas as we shot out into the night like the proverbial bat out of hell. I know, I know it's a cliche saying, but it's exactly how we felt. Shaking stopped. Screaming stopped. Everything stopped except for Tom and Greg's swearing and Sarah's sobs. I sat in the back seat, stunned and terrified, listening to the night wind as we left the cemetery in the dust. But just before we turned onto the main road, just before we left sight of the cemetery for good, I could have sworn I heard someone calling my name. In the voice of someone who'd been dead for twelve years. That night ended our friendship. It seemed like a big deal at the time, but looking back, most high school friendships are doomed to fade into obscurity. We would have drifted apart sooner or later anyway. It was just the fact that it happened so suddenly that made it hard to swallow. But maybe it was for the best. Our experience became a part of the legends. We didn't hear stories about mysterious laughter anymore. Instead, we heard stories about screaming and shaking in hell. I chose not to listen to them. I don't want to anymore. I just wanted it all to go away. But things like that never really go away, do they? It's been many, many years since I graduated and left my hometown. Many years since I've been to Sandwood and put flowers on my sister's grave, praying and hoping that I would wake up and everything would have been one big nightmare. I don't have nightmares anymore. Nothing in my dreams can be worse than what I've seen awake. It's the 30th anniversary of my sister's death this year. My parents want me to come home for her death date. They want me to visit the cemetery with them, and I know I should. I know it's important to them, and it's my duty to them as their daughter. And yet, I find myself hesitating as the season draws to a close, as the snow begins to fall and ice begins to cover the roads. Because I'm terrified of the day when I return. I'm terrified of hearing my name whispered once again in the cold stillness of the cemetery, beckoning me to glance at what's on the other side. I first met Eddie when he came into our clinic eight months ago for a broken hand. He was quiet and reserved. Not like he was shy so much that he was afraid of the world. Something or someone had hurt him in the past, and he still carried the bruises. It made me feel sympathy for him, but it wasn't why I liked him. He was smart. Talking to him for five minutes would tell you that. By the time he came back up for his second follow-up, he'd gotten familiar enough with me to talk more as I checked his hand. He was funny, and underneath his shaggy hair were kind eyes set in a sad but handsome face. This was his last scheduled visit, and I was already dreading it being over. 
We lived in a big city, and the odds of us crossing paths again seemed small. That's when he laughed at some joke I'd made, and in that moment, his face lit up. Not just the cautious smile he usually gave, but a moment where I could see him without whatever baggage he seemed to carry around all the time. Seeing that, I knew. Before I could overthink it, I asked him out. His eyes had gone wide as he sucked in a breath. You think he'd gotten punched in the gut instead of having the girl who was his PA ask him out. I felt sure he was going to say no, but when we met eyes, something changed there. His expression was still troubled, but he gave a small nod as he began to smile. Yeah. I... I'd really like that. We dated for six months, and for the most part it was great. Being with him was different than anyone I'd ever dated, and not just because of how I felt or how I could tell he felt about me. We got along well, had fun together, and over time we grew really close, but there was always a... a barrier. Not like he wasn't in touch with his emotions, or he didn't want things getting too serious, but more like he was always distracted, or had something weighing in on his mind. When I asked about it, he just shrugged it off with a laugh, telling me that he was just a moody prick. I didn't buy it, but I didn't want to push it either. I figured he'd tell me more when he was ready. And then three weeks ago, he broke up with me. It was out of the blue, no explanation. Just a text that said, I'm sorry, but I have to stop seeing you. I should have stopped this earlier, but... I liked you so much. Now I love you, and I'm sorry I ever put you at risk. Don't contact me again, please. When I tried texting and calling, there was never any answer. I even went by his apartment a couple of times, but he wouldn't come to the door. I told myself I needed to just let it go and move on, but I couldn't. Not just because I wanted to be with him and I thought he was making a mistake, but because I knew that whatever he was talking about in the text was connected to the shadow that seemed to haunt him all the time, the same darkness that made him afraid of living. So I started following him. Not all the time, and it sounds more stalkerish than it really was, but I admit to feeling weird as I sat outside his apartment some evenings and tailed him a few times a week when he ventured out. He never went anywhere other than work, the grocery store, and the Sunday morning ferry. A ritual I'd always known about but never questioned. I admit to being relieved that there was no sign of him being with someone else, but that had never been my main concern. There was something going on with him, something bad, and if I couldn't figure it out by watching him, I'd have to find a way to make him talk to me at least one more time. After two weeks of studying his habits, the fairy was the obvious option. Based on the little bit he told me, it was just something he liked doing. Riding the Sunday fairy round trip, being around people without being a part of them. Never got off the boat. Just rode the hour each way and then went back home. It had sounded odd at the time, but knowing him now, it made more sense. Just because he tried to avoid making connections with people didn't mean he was lonely. Whatever was eating away at him, there was something just as strong in Eddie that loved and wanted to be loved. Something wonderful that was worth fighting for. That next Sunday, which was this last Sunday, was Eddie's birthday. I'd considered and discarded other options for contacting him, sending him a gift going back to his apartment, calling until he answered or turned off his phone. But none of that would work, and if anything, it would just drive him further away. As weird as it felt, ambushing him on the ferry while we were on the water seemed like the best and only way to get him to talk to me. So that's exactly what I did. Happy birthday, stranger. Eddie jumped a little as he turned to look at me. Emily, what are you... He glanced at the water and then around the deck where he'd been propped against the railing. Did you follow me here? 
I tried to smile, but I could feel it twisting into an embarrassed wince. I did, yeah. But look, I, I know this looks like I'm stalking you or something. I'm not. Or if I am, it's not like I'm crazy or something. I just... Look, I care about you a lot. Fuck, I, I love you, and... He was shaking his head. Emily, you can't be here. You can't be around me, especially right now. You need to go. Get away from me. I felt tears springing in my eyes. What's wrong with you? Not you being with me. If you don't want to be with me, that sucks. But I'll deal with it. But that's not why I've been following you or whatever. Something bad is going on with you and you'd never tell me what it is. So that's why I'm doing this, okay? Eddie took a step back, looking around us again. You don't understand. You need to get out of here. Go to the far side of the ferry, and when we dock, I'll get off. You ride back, and then go home. Forget that you ever met me. His eyes were glistening, too, and he wiped his face distractedly as he continued to backpedal. Lunging forward, I grabbed his hand. Please tell me what's going on. Are you in some kind of trouble? Is someone after you? He tried to pull away, but only weakly. Gripping his hand tighter, I stepped closer, looking up at him. Please, tell me. I won't leave until you do, but after you do, if you want me to go, I will. I promise. He let out a long, ragged sigh before giving me a defeated nod. Fine, I'll tell you. Looking up, he met my eyes. But you have to go after, okay? For good. Sniffling, I nodded. And then he began. When I was in college, I pledged at one of the fraternities. It wasn't something I planned, but my roommate was doing it, and I was looking for a way to make more friends and meet girls. For the most part, it was fine, but every pledge had to go through an initiation of sorts some kind of prank or punishment that their sponsor came up with. Mine was Miss Everett. Miss Everett was a retired college professor that lived on the edge of town. Apparently, the fraternity had an ongoing beef with her from a few years back. When she'd been a big part of flunking out a couple of members, and my sponsor, a guy named Dudley, thought it would be funny to mess with her. I never felt good about it. She'd retired because she was going senile, a decline that had apparently started a few years earlier when her husband disappeared. Honestly, the little stories my prospective brothers told me about her made me feel sorry for her more than anything else. And when they got to the man on her porch, I already knew where it was going. Since her retirement three years earlier, Everett had taken to sitting a dummy or scarecrow out on her front porch year-round. Every day, she'd go out on the porch and talk to it, barely noticing passerby that watched the old woman talking to the odd figure occupying the rocking chair across from her. Dudley told me she must think it was her old man, come back from wherever he'd run off, and that didn't seem unreasonable, but he just made everything he was telling me worse because he wanted me to take the dummy off the porch and burn it. I'd love to tell you that I didn't do it, that I was better or stronger than that, but I wasn't. I was stupid and weak, and I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. One night, Dudley drove me over there and parked across the street. Sure enough, there they were. A little old woman sitting on her porch talking to a slouching figure in stitched together clothes and a large brim straw hat. It was the saddest thing I'd ever seen, but something about it made me shiver a bit too. I was about to tell Dudley that this was a bad idea, that she was never going to leave the dummy alone anyway when he poked me in the side. Look there, he said. That old bitch was finally going in. I forced myself to do it before I could chicken out. I had a hood and a scarf around my mouth, so even if she came back out, she'd never be able to give a good description. But there was no sign of hers. I jumped onto the porch and grabbed the dummy. 
It was heavier than I was expecting, but I was scared enough that it didn't slow me down much. I just dragged it down the steps and over to the driveway. Once I had it there, I squirted lighter fluid all over and tossed down a match. I could hear something behind me now, coming from the house. It was an awful sound, a thin, warbling wail. Looking back, I could see Miss Everett on the porch. Looking past me at the burning dummy with shining eyes. And a mouth slack with some form of sad horror. She started down the steps and I took off running for the car. Dudley was laughing as I jumped in and 20 minutes later we were back at the frat house where everyone was slapping me on the back and telling me how fucking awesome I was. But I didn't feel awesome. I felt sick. Sick and ashamed. And when I finally went to bed, I barely slept at all before Dudley was texting me and telling me to check the local news. Apparently, Miss Everett tried to put the dummy out by smothering the flames and had gotten badly burned in the process. She was in an ICU, but the bigger story was what police had found in the dummy itself. Human remains. Still unidentified, but presumed to be parts of her missing husband, Harris Everett. I spent the next two weeks constantly terrified. The police would find out I'd burned the dummy, they'd arrest me, and then she would die and they'd charge me with murder. Except no one ever found out. I don't credit the fraternity with being that loyal. If anyone had asked, I'm sure they would have turned on me in a second, but no one really cared about the dummy that much. Or if they did, they didn't have any idea she hadn't done it herself. And once the body was identified as Harris Everett and there were signs that he'd been poisoned, well, they were focused almost entirely on his widow. Maybe they would have looked at it all closer if things hadn't worked out the way it did. Harry had never left the ICU. I read she got a staph infection and died after a couple more weeks. After that, everyone just kind of let it go. I was still ashamed, but I tried to tell myself that she was a crazy murderer, and it wasn't my fault she jumped on the flames. Over time, I got where I thought about it less and less. And then the next year, on my birthday, I received a card. It was in a plain orange envelope, and the cover of the card itself was one of those weird paintings of ships, like sailboats you see on some cards. Above it, it just said, Happy Birthday. It was funny because I knew my parents were actually on a boat that day. They were in Portugal, taking a trip out on a sailboat with some friends that they were visiting for a couple of weeks. They'd called to wish me a happy birthday, telling me we'd had a big party when they got back. Wondering if the card was from them, I opened it. It was unsigned, with only three words written in small black letters across the empty space. Masts ahead. Deny. It was so weird and random. I figured it was a joke, but when I asked my friends, no one admitted to it. It wasn't until next day that I'd heard about the incident. Apparently, the boat my parents had been on had never made it far past the harbor. I never knew the details, but two boats collided at the edge of the bay, and my parents' friend, who wasn't that experienced piloting his new sailboat, couldn't turn in time. They rammed into each other. Two ships sank, killing two people. My parents... Oh, God. I knew they were dead, but I always figured it was like a car accident or something. You never wanted to say, and and he met my eyes. That's just the start. I frowned. What do you mean? We were sitting down on a bench near the railing now, and as Eddie looked away, he leaned forward onto his knees. The next year, I got another card on my birthday. Same orange envelope. On the outside was a cartoon of a wooden platform with a big block sitting on it. 
I could tell it was a chopping block because of the fat executioner standing next to it. He had on overalls and a black hood, and he was holding a big axe. He laughed bitterly. <laughs> I was already fucked up by then, but I still didn't really know what it all meant. When I opened it up, I saw the same handwriting in three words. Headsman day set. That afternoon, I got a call from the sheriff's office back home. My sister had been driving when her brakes failed, heading into a turn. It might not have been so bad, but there was a farmer coming from the other direction, driving one of those big combines up into his other field. And he swallowed. When she went under, it tore her head off. I reached out and grabbed his arm, but he didn't seem to notice. He just kept talking in that dead-sounding monotone as he stared about the water. After that, I just shut down for a little while. I flunked out of school. I had enough money for my parents' estate to just exist for a while. So I didn't go out. Cut off all my friends. Kept myself almost entirely separate from the world. He glanced at me. And it worked. The next birthday, no card. The one after that, no card. And he smiled bitterly. By then, I convinced myself it was over. Whatever it was, it was done. So I started to go back to school, reconnected with a few old friends, even started dating a girl named Jamie. I felt my stomach twisting. What happened? His smile turned hard. It became my birthday again. And I got another fucking card. This one was of a knife plunged into a heart. It almost looked like an anti-Valentine's Day card, but I already knew better. It had been laying on my bed in the same orange envelope, and above the pierced, drawn heart, it said, Happy Birthday. Inside is just three words. Hated Damn Essay. I didn't know what it meant at first, but I got a text from Jamie. She told me she'd just gotten her paper back from her English professor and he'd hated the damn essay she'd spent almost a month busting her ass on. I tried to call her, but she didn't answer. I wasn't sure where she was, but I thought I'd try her house first. The police cars were there when I arrived. They said she'd surprised a burglar. Her flat screen TV was sitting in the middle of the floor, splashed with blood from where she'd been stabbed twice in the chest. They told me later she died quickly. One of the hits had gotten her in the heart. No one was ever caught. They looked at me for a while, not just because I was the boyfriend, but they managed to figure out a pattern of tragedy that seemed to follow me around. Still, what could they really do about it? My family had died hundreds of thousands of miles away, and Jamie had been murdered when my phone and multiple cameras showed me as being across town. I finished out the year and then I moved away, determined that I was going to figure out what was going on and stop it, or if I couldn't, I'd just live my life alone, and that seemed like the only way to keep people safe. It wasn't hard for me to connect it back to Miss Everett. Not that I could say for sure, but it had started the year after I burned her husband's body and inadvertently contributed to her death. Maybe they had a child or a friend that was trying to get revenge. I spent a long time looking into it, interviewing neighbors and cops and older faculty under the pretense of being a reporter working on an article on strange murders. I figured they must have someone else in their lives, but I could never find anyone. In fact, aside from each other, they seemed to be as isolated as I was. And then I focused on the cards themselves. I found a woman on the internet that does forensic consultations on documents and handwriting. It cost a couple of grand, but I got her to look at the cards in person. She said they were all custom-made on the same card stock, and while she couldn't say for sure what ink was used... The medium and the handwriting itself seemed to be consistent across all three cards. 
I was starting to think I'd wasted the money when she told me something else. These messages, they're all the same. I frowned at him. What does that mean? Eddie shook his head slightly. I'd never noticed it, but the lady saw it right away. All three messages. Happy birthday. Masts ahead deny. Happy birthday. Headsman day set. Happy birthday. Hated damn essay. They're anagrams. Just the same letters swapped around in different ways. Staring, I felt myself begin to tremble. Who would do that? He started to respond when his eyes went past me. Oh, God. Turning, I let out a small scream at the figure coming toward us. It walked with a stooped, shuffling gait, its blackened clothes stitched together and smoking. As it crossed the deck, its wide-brimmed hat only partially covering the ruined horror peeking out from beneath. I looked around for help, but the deck was empty, and as I stood to run, I saw Eddie had already gotten up, pushing past me to meet the thing before it reached us. He never said anything as he ran forward, wrapping his arms around the figure as they staggered toward the rail. There was a terrible moment where they were still, and then they slammed into the railing hard enough that they both went over into the murky water below. I called for help, of course, but they never found him. I called for help, of course, but they never found him, and the cameras on that end of the dock had somehow stopped working a few minutes before. I was left with nothing but sadness and fear and questions, endless questions of what had happened and why. Nothing but an orange envelope that I found lying on the dock near where they'd gone over. My hands shook as I held it. There was so much I didn't know. What had been behind it all? Had it really been tied to Mrs. Everett and her murdered husband? If he had really been murdered at all, and if he had, why would he haunt and torment a boy just for playing an awful prank on the woman that took his life? It was then that it struck me I didn't really know Eddie that well either. I did love him, but how much of himself had he really shown me, and could I trust everything he'd said? Had he ran at that creature to save me or just to finally make his own pain stop? And what good would come from opening the envelope now? Now that it was all done? In spite of myself, I broke the seal and slid the card free. It was a drawing of a man, much like Eddie, sinking down into the dark depths of a black sea. Framing his terrified face were charred arms and fingers, and above that, drifting up like dying air, were the words, Happy Birthday. I opened the card and read the words before dropping it to the ground. Says the dead man. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the stories so far. If you are, be sure to drop a like and subscribe if you're new. Both of those things really help to tell YouTube that I'm doing a good job over here and they should be showing my videos to more people. It's kind of how this works. <laughs> so leave me a comment, drop a like, and subscribe if you're new. And we're going to get into one final story for tonight. I'm a bit of a penny pincher. I try to stick to the bare essentials when grocery shopping. I spend most of my free time earning money in other ways. I sell things, look for odd jobs on Craigslist, and take surveys online. It's more than likely due to these surveys that I received a mysterious package in the mail. Allow me to explain. I take countless surveys online that range from questions about my shopping experiences to very intrusive personal questions. After roughly 30 surveys or so, most sites will send you some money, anywhere from $1 to $5. I mostly get $2 bills. It's tedious work, but if you have nothing else to do, why not make some extra cash? 
Like I said, I'm a penny pincher. It's not that I'm greedy or anything. I just feel more comfortable knowing that I have a good chunk of money to fall back on in case of an emergency. Now, because of these surveys, I've typed my address into a lot of websites. As such, I receive an overwhelming amount of junk mail. I don't mind it all that much. Between the money from the surveys and never needing firewood in the winter, it's worth it. One day, however, I received a package. The package was wrapped in leather, something I'd never seen come through the mail before. Embossed on the upper left corner was a rather impressive logo. It seemed that the mystery package came from a company called Syntheticorp. Initially, I thought there was some sort of mix-up at the post office, but my name and address were right on their package, embossed just like the logo. I asked my wife what she thought of it, but she offered no insight. After seeing it, she grew excited and tried pressuring me into opening it. In her defense, the thing did look... important, I guess? Like whatever was inside was at the very least expensive. After fending off my curious wife and mulling over it for a few moments, I decided it would be best not to open it just yet. I assumed that this Synthetocorp accessed my home address in the same manner of all the other junk mail companies did. After all, I did give my address away to various outlets daily. Perhaps the package was a more elaborate form of the usual scams that made their way into my mailbox. It was more than likely harmless. However, normal junk mail is one thing. Packages are another. I chose to do a little research before tearing it open. In googling Synthetocorp, I found that there were multiple agencies using the moniker. None of them seemed like scam manufacturers, but then again, they never do. I decided to call each one of them and ask about the package. A few phone calls later and I was back at square one. None of these Synthetocorp I called were the one that sent me the mystery box. One of the guys who answered the phone even seemed angry that I was calling, as if the number should not have been widely available. In any case, I was still dumbfounded by the package. I so badly felt the need to open it, but I wanted to also feel safe doing so. For all I knew, it could have been a bomb. Not likely, but not completely out of the realm of possibility, especially in this day and age. I spent the next couple of hours on Google looking for the company that sent me the damn thing. I needed anything that would put my mind at ease, just enough to cross that threshold, allowing me to open it and reveal its contents. After scouring thousands of results, I found something. There was one complaint on one review site for a company called Synthetocorp. I scrolled down to the comment in question, and this is all it said. Don't open it. What? <laughs> Don't open it? Did they mean the package? I couldn't wrap my head around what this meant. Aggravated, I threw my keyboard aside and went to bed. A few days passed. After reading the alleged complaint from the random review site I visited, I was more than a bit hesitant to open the thing up. In fact, I almost put it out with the garbage. Out of sight, out of mind, as the old saying goes. The only thing that kept me from doing this was my curiosity. Because of this, I left it in my car. I tried one more time to forget about it, but this was not a simple task. I kept wondering about what might be waiting for me inside the package, an invitation to a secret society, a priceless oddity passed on from stranger to stranger, or some other type of treasure. I couldn't help but fantasize about it. I did this so much that opening it became an inevitable conclusion. Noticing that my car hadn't exploded yet and thinking a little more clearly about the situation, I decided that taking a peek inside the package would be a harmless venture. After all, the complaint I'd seen could have been any one of the dozens of synthetic corps out there. More likely, it was a fake review. Either way, it was nothing more than an eerie coincidence. At least that's what I told myself in an effort to justify my desires. My curiosity demanded placation. On the day in question, I arrived home from work and brought the leather-bound box inside. 
I placed it on the kitchen table and stared at it. I told my wife about my plans to open it and she demanded that I wait for her to get home before doing so. I told her that I might. Truth be told, I couldn't. I needed to solve the mystery if only to satisfy my hunger for answers. I grabbed the damn thing and attempted to rip it apart. The leather was tightly bound, but with some brute force and a little bit of sweat, I was able to penetrate some of the hide. I fought with it for a few more moments, tearing off pieces at a time. That's when my wife walked in. I knew you couldn't wait for me, you impatient bastard, she exclaimed. Yeah, I know, I can't wait for anything. You think you could give me a hand over here? She scoffed at me, but rushed over to help, just as curious as I was. It took us nearly half an hour, but we managed to get most of the leather off. Beneath it was a small wooden chest. Excited, my wife jumped the gun and attempted to open it. Her actions were futile, as it seemed to be locked. It looked like we were back at square one, but I noticed something etched into the wood below a keyhole. It said, House Key. My wife and I looked at each other in confusion. I thought about it for a moment and hesitantly reached for my keys. I looked over at my wife and we chuckled, but it quickly turned into a nervous laugh and then silence. I tried the key and, to our utter disbelief, the lock popped open. There was only one thing left to do. I opened the box and looked inside. My wife and I stared equally, dumbfounded by the reveal. I could neither surmise its meaning, nor did I know what to do next. It was baffling. Inside the box was a live rabbit. A live fucking rabbit. Next to the rabbit was a scrap of paper. I picked it up and read it. Do not read aloud or you'll suffer the consequences. You have one minute to act. Go to the kitchen and grab a large knife. Proceed to kill the rabbit or your wife will die. That is a promise. Do not tell her about this note. Burn it after completing the task. The clock is ticking. Below the text was a picture of my wife sleeping in bed. I'd never seen that picture before. Without hesitation, I ran to the kitchen, grabbed the largest knife I could find, and hurried back over to the rabbit. I stabbed it multiple times until I knew it was dead. I expected my wife to scream, but she didn't. Instead, she asked me a question. What are you doing? I looked over at her apologetically. I can't tell you. Please, just trust me. We'll have to bury it in the yard. Bury what in the yard? She asked, sounding a bit confused. The rabbit, I said. What rabbit? She asked. The one right here. I gestured toward the bloody carcass in the box. My wife shot me the weirdest look before speaking again. Hun, the box is empty. I slowly handed my wife the scrap of paper. She looked down and then back up at me. There's nothing on it. It's blank. Hun, are, are you okay? All of a sudden, I felt dizzy. I looked at the paper in my wife's hands, and it was indeed void of any writing. I then looked over at the box. The rabbit was gone. A knot formed in the pit of my stomach as my legs gave out. Lightheaded and confused beyond all measures, my body hit the kitchen floor with a loud thud, and I involuntarily shut my eyes. I passed out within an instant. I woke in the comfort of my bed, feeling groggy and sore. My wife was sitting beside me with a troubled expression on her face. She was more than likely worried both for my physical and mental health. Oh, thank God. You alright? She asked. I'll be fine. How long was I out? About 20 minutes. I was about to call 911. What the hell happened? I changed the subject from my untimely descent to the box. 
I asked her if she truly saw nothing, in which she replied, no, nothing at all. We discussed it a little further, and while she agreed that my house key opening the box was weird, she figured that the package was some sort of misguided prank. She said she'd call the post office for more information. While conversing about the package, I was able to convince my wife that my strange actions and fall were both due to exhaustion, having overexerted myself at work. I conveniently left out the details on the note. I didn't want her thinking I was a lunatic suffering from hallucinations, even if I was. She seemed to buy my story, and that was that. Until the following day. After a much-needed good night's rest, I woke up the next day feeling refreshed and ready to take on the world. I recalled what happened that night previous, but I decided it would be best not to dwell on uncertainties. My best course of action, I thought, would be to forget the whole thing ever happened. It was a sane individual, after all. The events that transpired that night before were truly a product of me being overtired. Yeah, that explanation sat well with me. While driving to work with a newfound sense of well-being, the illusion of sanity I clung to shattered abruptly. I adjusted my mirror at a red light and noticed something laying in my back seat. It was the rabbit, dead as could be, staining the upholstery with its pungent blood. I jumped and looked back at the seat. There was nothing there. A horn blared from behind me, causing me to jump a second time. The light had turned green and I was holding up traffic. I quickly adjusted myself and drove forward, trying to gather my wits as I did. Fortunately for me, it wouldn't be that simple. I kept looking at my mirror, thinking I'd see the rabbit again, but I did not. I managed to calm myself down and convince myself once again that I was sane and it was just a trick of the eyes. And the dozens of dead rabbits on the side of the road that I passed on my way to work... That was just a coincidence. Surely I wasn't crazy. I arrived at work a bit frazzled and made my way inside. The place was oddly vacant for a Saturday, but I ignored this and walked over to my office. The lack of life made sense when I opened the door. Surprise! All my co-workers had piled into my office for some sort of celebration. They all wore festive hats and had party horns in hand. Laughing ensued as I entered the room. Before I could ask what it was all for, my boss walked over to me. Happy five years with the company. You've done great things here and we all wanted you to know how much we appreciate the work you do. Take some time, kick back, and relax. You've earned it. I heard a bottle of champagne pop in the corner of the room. Still on edge from the ride over, I jumped. Everyone laughed. My boss's laugh was the loudest and most comical, which caused everyone to laugh even harder. That's when I joined in. For a few moments, my worries vanished. I forget all about the stupid package and the weird ride to work. It was nice, but things don't last. Once the laughter stopped, my boss put his hand on my shoulder and spoke again. By the way, we got something for you. Hope you like it. He walked me over to my desk and... Everyone stepped away to reveal my gift. Well, what do you think? He asked. There, lying on my desk, was a dead rabbit. My boss began cutting into the rabbit with a knife and passing around pieces of its flesh to my co-workers. Hope you like chocolate, he said. Maybe the thing my boss was cutting into truly was just a cake, but it was still shaken by what I was witnessing. Here you go, the best piece. My boss handed me a rabbit's head on a paper plate. That was the last straw. I dropped the plate, ran out of the building, got into my car, and left. I couldn't be sure of what was going on, but I knew I couldn't work. As such, I sped home, ignoring all the rabbit carcasses I passed along the way. I needed to rest off whatever it was that ailed me. I arrived home and stormed through the front door, startling my wife who was sitting on the couch reading a book. You're home early. Everything alright? She asked. I'm taking a sick day. I don't feel so hot. 
I almost made it up the stairs when my wife stopped me. Oh, I called the post office. They said the man who sent you the package will be there to meet you at 2 p.m. Wait, who sent it? I asked. They didn't say. That was all they told me. That was bizarre. I didn't even know the post office had the power to arrange such a meeting. Something wasn't adding up, but then again, it made about as much sense as anything else that had happened. I decided it would be best to meet this mystery person. Maybe then I'd have some answers. I slept for a few hours and woke up to a bunch of missed calls from work, as well as a text from my boss that said, Sorry, next time we'll get vanilla. I looked at the time. It was 1.35. That was my cue to throw on my shoes and head out. I didn't want to miss my impromptu meeting with who I could only guess would be the CEO of Synthetacorp. I drove down to the post office and quickly made my way in. There were a bunch of people in there picking up mail and sending out packages, so I couldn't be sure who it was that I was meeting. Noticing that I looked lost, an older gentleman walked over to me. Ah, there you are. The man snapped his fingers, and as if by magic, everything stopped. What I meant by that is everyone stopped moving and silence filled the room. Everything was frozen somehow. Baffled, I looked over to the man for answers. What's... what's going on here? Well, I was hoping we could find that out together. I had no idea what the man was talking about, so I remained silent like the rest of the room. Oh, where are my manners? Allow me to introduce myself. I'm Dr. Grovewood, but you can call me Doc if you like. Do you work for Synthetocorp? I asked. Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. One answer was mine so far, but it wasn't much. I needed to press him for more information. Tell me, Doc, what the hell is going on here? I'm sorry to say there's no simple answer. I will, however, try my best. I just ask that you keep an open mind and bear with me. Dr. Grovewood cleared his throat and then elaborated. The life you know and hold dear is nothing but a simulation. None of this is real. Not even you, technically speaking. You are a synthetic life form created by Synthetocorp. You're currently in a lab hooked up to a computer, the one running the simulation. You're being tested for various things. We need to do this all on our new models before entering the production stage. You mean to tell me, please, let me finish. I bit my tongue so as to hear the rest of his outlandish story. When a round of testing is complete, we then proceed with waking you up, so to speak. But therein lies the malfunction. We've tried to wake you up several times, but we can't seem to break free of the delusion that is this life. You become hysterical upon waking up, seem to believe that everything here in the simulation is real, and the real world out there is not. Though I didn't believe a word he was saying, I kept listening, if only out of morbid curiosity. If you keep waking up like that, it will cause irrevocable damage to your programming. That's why we sent you the package. What do you mean? I asked, now a little more invested in the story. We introduced the package into the simulation to try and invoke lucidity. You see, this world's not unlike a dream. It's our hypothesis that if we can convince you you're dreaming while asleep, so to speak, then we can jolt you awake without causing any further damage. Does that make any sense? I remained both dubious and silent. So, we started off with the odd package. Not completely absurd, but still strange. Then when you opened it, you found something even stranger. And on top of that, you were the only one who could see it. Take a look outside. I slowly turned my head and looked out the post office window. To my amazement, there were thousands of dead rabbits piled up in the parking lot. I couldn't even see my car. Do you understand now? We thought that if we introduced enough absurdities into your life, you'd realize that you were in a simulation and snap out of this funk you're in. They had to send me in because it doesn't seem to be working. You're too stubborn, it seems. We need to wake you up now so we can properly tackle this glitch that keeps you anchored into this reality. 
I turned back to Dr. Grovewood, astonished by what he was trying to sell me. I was close to buying it, but not quite. It would explain everything that had happened, but I wanted to make sure. Just as I was about to ask more questions, Dr. Grovewood spoke again. That's all, folks. What? I asked. I looked at Dr. Grovewood closely and noticed that he'd become frozen, just like everybody else, and that's when everything started fading. I could feel myself slipping from one world into the next. I woke up in the comfort of my bed and noticed Porky Pig on my TV along with some end credits. Given it was my favorite cartoon growing up, I always put on a Looney Tunes DVD before bed to help me sleep. Worked like a charm. I got up out of bed and then something hit me. I started remembering this crazy dream I had. As the details came flooding back, I realized something else. I grabbed the TV remote and restarted the last episode of Looney Tunes that had played. It was a typical episode where Elmer Fudd was chasing down Bugs Bunny. I smiled. My smile turned into a laugh when everything sunk in. I thought about the weird package, the rabbit I killed, and the dock. Some of the episodes must have leaked into my dream. My brain used a few of the details and strung together a crazy narrative to fill in the blanks. (laughs) It's amazing.